Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. A new report in Massachusetts finds cases of serious abuse and neglect at a private special education school. It's the kind of place parents wish they had more information about. There is no Yelp. I can't just go online and say, how is this school rated? Will my child be safe? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Denkowski. We'll hear from our reporter investigating these schools serving some of the neediest students around New England. We'll also head to Block Island, where the nation's first offshore wind farm is about to get spinning. It could mark a big moment for New England's energy future. But before we get too excited, here's what happened last week in Scotland. They were generating the entirety of their country's electricity from wind. Okay, we've got a ways to go. Oh, and speaking of Scotland, they've tried it. So has Texas and Quebec. But did you know that Martha's Vineyard once tried to break free? If any, any part of Massachusetts should be independent, it should be this place. We'll listen to Secession Stories next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, the waters off of tiny Block Island might just be the scene of the nation's biggest energy revolution. But first, a report out last week from the Boston-based Disability Law Center finds widespread abuse and neglect at a private special education school in Middleborough, a town in the southeast corner of Massachusetts. There are worries, though, that the problems seen at Chamberlain International School might be more widespread. Here's Stan Eichner. He's head litigator at the Law Center. We have a growing concern about students with disabilities across the Commonwealth being severely mistreated. It's our sense that the mistreatment of these youngsters with disabilities is not limited to public or private schools, it's not limited by geography, and we think it's a widespread problem. So the question is, how big is this problem, and does it stretch into neighboring states? WBUR News and the investigative journalism unit, The Eye, have been investigating private special education schools that serve some of the most vulnerable students in Massachusetts. The state has been seen as a leader in special education, but more than 40 years after a groundbreaking law that mandated services for all students in the Commonwealth, some officials and advocates worry that the system has grown into a web of fragmented oversight, making it difficult to share information that could potentially prevent mistreatment. Reporter Shannon Dooling has been covering this story for us. Shannon, welcome to Next. Thanks, John. So first of all, how many students are we talking about here in the system? So there are about 6,000 publicly funded Massachusetts students in these out-of-district placements at private special ed schools. Um, There are approximately 1,500 out-of-state and international students at these Massachusetts schools, including uh, some students from from all over New England. Um, The schools here in Massachusetts are often referred to as 766 schools. They're named after the state's special ed law, uh, which in fact was the first of its kind in the country. Uh, So basically what that law requires 
If a public school district determines it can't meet the needs of a special ed student, then the district is required by law to pay for an appropriate education elsewhere. And so sometimes that means at these private special ed schools that are outside of the district. Um, So students at these private special ed schools, you know, they can display a wide range of diagnoses, including autism, severe anxiety or depression. Um, We're going to hear right now from James Major. He's the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of 766 Approved Private Schools. Major says students at these schools have complex, severe disabilities, and that can make for a challenging academic environment. They usually have failed repeatedly over and over and over again, and it's been incredibly frustrating uh, for the kid. And our schools really represent the last hope an opportunity for these kids. According to Massachusetts data, the number of special ed students with severe disabilities is increasing dramatically. For example, since 2003, enrollment of students with autism is up more than 300 percent. The number of students with severe neurological impairments is up almost 150 percent in the same time frame. Again, here's James Major. The numbers of kids with complex and severe disabilities is increasing in America and in Massachusetts, and and it's increasing dramatically. And it's a real challenge to not only to our members, but to public school districts. So, Shannon, you went looking for people who are trying to find more information about schools just like these. Yeah, that's right. I spoke with many parents who say they wish the process of learning about these private special ed schools was easier. Um, they can't find information about past allegations of mistreatment at schools. It's it's really difficult to find a list of the schools that might be available or, or appropriate for their child. So one of the, the parents that we spoke with, actually, her son attended the Chamberlain International School, which was the subject of the Disability Law Center's latest investigation. We'll hear more about her story uh, coming up next. But first, this is Marie. She lives in Norfolk, Mass. She shared her family's story about searching for a private special ed school for their son. Let's head down to the end of the block so you guys can ride. All right? You can go ahead, bud. Marie's lanky 13-year-old son is cruising around their neighborhood on his razor trike. Marie says it's one of his favorite summer activities. It's kind of the equivalent of an adult big wheel. (laughs) And, um, you know, executive functioning is a challenge, which means that learning to do something like ride a bike is a challenge. We've agreed not to use Marie's last name because of her son's age and to protect his medical privacy. Her son was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. He also has acute anxiety disorder. Marie began homeschooling her son in the second grade when the combination of academic and social pressures made the public school environment a difficult place for her son to learn. The boy was supposed to begin the third grade at a special ed program in the Norfolk district. But when his behavior became increasingly aggressive, Marie says the school district could no longer accommodate him. The school advised that instead of homeschooling or trying to bring him back into school, they felt it was best that we look for an outplacement. Marie says none of the special ed schools suggested by the Norfolk district were appropriate for her son. She says they either didn't accept students his age or didn't take students with his type of aggressive behavior. At that point, Marie and her husband had to do a lot of their own research, looking online and asking around to other parents. 
After trying one school, they ultimately pulled their son when he came home with bruising around his wrists. They began searching again. There is no Yelp. I can't just go online and say, how is this school rated? There's nothing out there like that. We're talking about putting our child in a school where they may use restraints. And, you know, it was very hard to find out information. Have there been any incidents with any of the children who have been put in restraints? Will my child be safe? And you have to pretty much wait and see what happens. The mother of a former Chamberlain International School student says she also could have used more information about private special ed schools. Jacqueline Dinan from Pembroke, New Hampshire, says she wishes she'd had access to information about Chamberlain's record of mistreatment before she sent her son to the school in 2014. Dinan says she now counts her 13-year-old son among those cases of mistreatment. She says her son experienced a traumatic altercation with a female staff member at Chamberlain. Dinan's son told her over the phone what he alleged the staff member said. He said that she said, when you're older and you're in prison, you're not going to be able to speak because you're going to have a dick in your mouth. Dinan says her son was also sexually harassed by older students, was excessively restrained by staff, and even slapped in the face. I don't think that one instance of neglect or a single incident of abuse means you it's not a good school. But if there's a report every day, you know, I want to know. It would have saved my son a lot of time. You know, I would have picked a different school for him. In addition to the report recently released documenting abuse and neglect at the Chamberlain School, the Disability Law Center earlier this year reported that it found examples of neglect by staff at the Evergreen Center, a private special ed school in Milford, Mass. The Evergreen Center says it cooperated fully with the law center in addressing its concerns, and the DLC closed the investigation last month. And Stan Eichner, head litigator at the Law Center, says the problem isn't confined to private special ed schools. They also found serious mistreatment at the public Peck School in Holyoke, Mass. Eichner says the mistreatment of students at the Peck School was startling. Students were mistreated by very large staff members. One student had been restrained again and, you know, many dozens of times. Many of the students had sustained physical injuries. It was just awful. In a statement, Dr. Stephen Dreich, the receiver of the Holyoke School District, says staff at the Peck School are receiving additional training, and there's been a steady decrease in the use of restraints in the program. Dreich says the school continues to cooperate with the law center. But at the private Eagleton School in Great Barrington, Mass., state licensing agencies found the culture of abuse to be beyond repair. The all-boys residential school was put on probation in February in response to allegations of staff punching students, refusing medical treatment, and verbally abusing the boys and young men. State regulators revoked the school's licenses in March, and the facility closed in April. 17 former Eagleton staffers now face criminal charges. Eichner says that school may be a reflection of a larger trend. Eagleton represents the state, to some extent, waking up and saying, okay, we have to really do something. There are big, big problems there. Too many vulnerable students were subjected to conditions that weren't vigorously overseen or monitored by the state. That was perhaps a watershed moment. 
In New Hampshire, the Lakeview School in Effingham was perhaps the watershed moment for state regulators there. Lakeview is still having a ripple effect in this state. Karen Rosenberg is a senior staff attorney at the Disability Rights Center in Concord, New Hampshire. She was the lead attorney on the center's investigation into Lakeview. Providers of special education are acutely aware of what happened at Lakeview, and the Department of Education really especially should be commended for how swiftly they moved in. The center's 2014 report documented many cases of abuse and neglect at the Neuro Rehabilitation Center and private special ed school. That included the death in 2012 of a 22-year-old man who likely died of neglect. After being placed on probation by the New Hampshire Department of Education, the school's license was eventually revoked, and the special ed school was closed in April of 2015. That's the talent show. Oh, the talent show. That's right. Love the talent show. We did a music video, and I was also included in student council. That's me right there. Back in Norfolk, Mass., flipping through her son's yearbook, it seems Marie and her husband did ultimately choose a great fit for their son. But Marie says it was a difficult road, and she's hopeful that maybe her family's experience can make it easier on other children. Maybe I can point somebody in the direction of saying, this is how you find out about a school. These are the questions you want to ask when you go. You want to consider distance. These are your child's rights. Right now, there's not enough of that that goes on. And everybody's kind of in their own little silo. You know, we're all walking through the same maze, but we're not walking together. And while state agencies are working to improve communication and break down some of those silos, it remains difficult to know exactly what's waiting at the end of that maze. That's Shannon Dooling from WBUR reporting. She was working in conjunction with the investigative reporting team at The Eye. She's back with us now. First of all, Shannon, what can you tell us about the allegations against the Chamberlain School in Massachusetts? So the allegations really centered around repeated findings of the school's inability to protect students from self-harm and from student suicide attempts. Staff were really, in some instances, using restraints excessively. So that could mean that they were either excessively rough with a student or perhaps they kept the student in that restraint for an excessive amount of time. So what is the state of Massachusetts doing about this? Did you get any reaction from education officials or child welfare officials? Yeah, we did. So Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, uh, as well as the state licensing agencies, say that they're all taking these findings seriously um, and they're reviewing the details of the report. But even before the results of the Chamberlain investigation were released, we talked with Maria Mosides. Uh, she's the director of the State Office of the Child Advocate. She told us that they hope to learn from difficult cases like the ones we heard about in the story. Uh, let's hear from Mosides. I think the population of children that are now in these schools represent more acute cases than ever before. And so it is a good time to look at the protocols and say, Are these sufficient to protect the children who are currently in these schools? And she says part of that includes interagency communication, particularly when it comes to sharing reports of abuse and neglect documented at residential schools. You've been investigating Massachusetts schools, but it's not the only state that serves public school students in private special ed schools, right? 
That's right. Every state has its own way of meeting the requirements of the federal special ed law. It's called IDEA, which again requires that students with disabilities be given a free and appropriate education in the least restrictive setting possible. So once a determination is made that a student can't be adequately served in a public school for whatever reason, then these private special ed schools come into play. Um, In Maine, for instance, the equivalent to these quote, 766 schools in Massachusetts are referred to as private special purpose schools. In Vermont, uh, students needing to look outside of a public school may be placed at what are referred to as independent schools. And the tuition, which can range from $100,000 to $300,000 at these schools, is generally paid for by the district. Um, So that's pretty expensive. It is pretty expensive, and there are different schools of thought as to whether or not putting that money back into a school district would be a better investment, but um, that's, I guess, another story for another time. What sort of reaction did you get from from listeners and people who read your story uh, from around the Boston area? I, you know, it's it's interesting in reporting the story, and then after the story aired and, and was published, um, we heard from a lot of people who, who quite frankly, thanked us for bringing some attention to this issue, uh, saying, you know, that that comment from from Marie that we hear that there's no Yelp for schools like this. We just want a central database that we can go to to find out what are the allegations against this school, what was decided, what you know, what corrective action was put into place. Uh, so that was a that was a big echoing comment throughout the. Throughout Throughout the feedback, I would say also that a number of people were also just sort of inquiring about what's the solution. Um, so, so what's next? How is the state going to work to in- improve this uh, this oversight? And you know, we'll we'll continue to follow up um, with the state and with with the agencies here in Massachusetts that do the licensing and the oversight uh, to to hold them to that and see what plans they have. If you'd like to read more on Shannon Dooling's reporting project on special education with WBUR News and the I, go to nextnewengland.org. Thanks so much, Shannon. Thank you, John. Coming up, the nation's first offshore wind farm is about to get up and running off the coast of Rhode Island. This is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Construction is close to complete on the country's first offshore wind farm, located about 15 miles off the coast of Rhode Island. The five turbines are set to start turning later this year. Rhode Island Public Radio reporter Ambar Espinosa took a boat ride out to the construction site. She spoke with Anders Soyensen, the CEO of Offshore Wind at GE Renewable Energy, which is working with Deepwater Wind to build the wind farm. He said the Block Island is just a small taste of what's possible for offshore wind here in the U.S. The uh, the potential capacity you have in the U.S. if you use offshore wind alone, I mean, you, you, you can more or less you can cover your your electricity generation in the U.S. if you wanted to to go offshore with all of it. So uh, there are plenty of wind resources around the U.S. coast. Uh, then it's a matter of where it's uh, financially viable. Northeast right now, good business case. So uh, it's going to happen up here. I'm very positive. I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. The expectation is the farm will provide most of the electricity supply for nearby Block Island, a tourist destination and home to about 1,500 residents. 
Hotel manager Elizabeth Connor says she's looking forward to lower electric bills. We typically have within the top 10 highest electric rates in the country at any given time. Sometimes we're number one, sometimes we're number five, but we're pretty much always in the top 10, and we should be able to get down into um, what the rest of Rhode Island is paying. But the project is also meant to feed energy to the mainland, where there's been a boom of onshore wind projects already. You'll see them atop ridge lines, especially in northern New England, and it's likely you'll see even more soon. But maybe not in Connecticut. Wind energy development in the state is challenged by its small size, lack of strong wind, and the residual effects of a three-year state ban on commercial-grade turbines. That ban ended in 2014, and now the owners of Connecticut's first commercial wind farm in the small town of Colebrook are proposing to build a much larger second farm in a nearby town. They say that building turbines on large tracts of forested land near state reservoirs could be a solution to Connecticut's limited space for large-scale wind projects. From Colebrook, Connecticut, WNPR's Ryan Karen King has our story. Greg Zupkis stands in the shadow of one of his company's wind turbines. There's a low hiss from the turbine's cooling fan, and in the distance there are sporadic gunshots popping off from the adjoining hunting club. But the turbines, surrounded by fields and forests and turning in the light summer breeze, are, for the most part, quiet. The people will see that these the turbines are just sitting here minding their own business. They're going to be here 20 plus years. When they proposed to build the Colebrook Wind Farm, Zupkis's company, BNE Energy, faced heavy opposition from some neighbors to the site who argued the turbines would produce too much noise and were too close to nearby properties. A local activist group pushed its case against the turbines all the way to the state's Supreme Court. But the court ruled in favor of the wind farm, clearing the way for future projects. There's a reason why every country around the world is throwing in wind turbines. But with the fourth densest population and the third smallest geographic area in the country, Connecticut doesn't have a lot of space to site wind projects. So right now, the state buys a lot of its renewable energy from other New England states to meet its clean energy goals. There's also just not a lot of wind in Connecticut. In 2015, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimated that only 63 square kilometers of land in Connecticut had the technical capacity to support wind energy, and that's not factoring in the potential of pushback from the community. You know, we have a highly educated population of environmentalists who, again, love the idea of renewables, but are very concerned about what tracts of land are going to be utilized for it. That's State Representative Lonnie Reed, who chairs the legislature's Energy and Technology Committee. She says she understands the concerns people might have about wind turbines being in their town. But she says any sort of organized community pushback makes it harder for the state to attract wind companies. Colebrook resident Joyce Hemmingson led the opposition against the Colebrook turbines. She says the intermittent nature of wind in New England causes many turbines to produce only 30% of their maximum energy output. For every three turbines that would be built, uh, it, it would take three to do the electric generation that one is rated at. That's why uh, onshore wind in New England is, is somewhat of a problem because you have to build more and more in order to get any amount of electricity. Hemmingson's group pushed the state to pass new laws that require the turbines to be distanced from surrounding property lines. But she's not satisfied with the distance requirements the state settled on, saying that turbines have to be farther away to cut down on exposure to low-frequency sound, which she says poses risk to neighbors. So there's community pushback, and Connecticut is surrounded by states with better onshore and offshore wind conditions. So is there a future for wind energy here? Greg Zupkis thinks the key is in the state's reservoirs. A lot of people don't realize there's a lot of land all over Connecticut that's locked up, uh, rightly so, by the water companies that have reservoirs, and they have their protection land around it. 
Well, if, if we come up and, as an example, a water company says, well, we don't have a problem with a turbine in the distance because now that means the next piece of property is going to never be developed. Zapkis's company wants to build another wind farm in nearby Goshen, Connecticut. At peak, it would produce about four times as much electricity as Colebrook. The new turbines would sit on one of the state's higher ridges among thousands of acres of heavily forested land owned by the Torrington Water Company. So that might be great for a water company and great for a wind company. But what about the town the wind turbines are in? Turns out the state, not the town, has most of the say where wind projects are sited. The State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection is now reviewing proposals for smaller scale clean energy resources and expects a decision later this summer. That's Ryan Karen King reporting. We wanted to find out more about how projects like these relatively small wind farms in northwest Connecticut and just off the Rhode Island shore might fit into New England's energy mix and whether there's a movement toward the types of massive wind turbine complexes currently powering large parts of Europe. So we talked to Greg Cunningham, an environmental lawyer with the Conservation Law Foundation. We reached him at the studios of Maine Public Broadcasting near his office in Portland. Greg Cunningham, welcome to Next. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. So talk about the notion that a wind farm like this that's sited close to an island where it's hard to get electricity, that the island is going to be the, the first beneficiaries of this, but the energy is also going to go to the rest of the grid. So the people of Block Island will <clears throat> have, in essence, uh, first dibs on electricity generated by the facility. It will, however, with some frequency, generate more electricity than is needed by the islanders. And as a result, unused energy will be exported on the grid. Those electrons will be delivered on a cable that will run under the Atlantic Ocean and to the mainland where it will be transmitted directly into our larger regional transmission grid. Of course, there are times when the wind doesn't blow and you're going to have to go to some secondary fuel source. Do you ever really get rid of the secondary fuel source, whether it's it's diesel or, or gas or something else, when you rely so heavily on intermittent um, renewable like wind? It depends. Uh, the geographic distribution of these kinds of resources matters. And, for example, in countries like Scotland, last week, for example, they were generating the entirety of their country's electricity from wind. They had enough resources distributed throughout the country uh, to generate enough electricity to power all of their homes and businesses. Here in New England, we have begun to develop these wind resources, these solar resources, but our public policies haven't gotten enough of it built. And what we need to do is emphasize in our markets and in our politics the need for clean energy that can be distributed throughout the region, that can be supplemented from outside of the region. And that combination of resources could supply a substantial amount of our electricity over time. I want to pull apart a few of the reasons why we don't have more renewables generating electricity here in New England. One of them is public policies, which I want to talk to you more about. But one of them has to do with just the availability of a resource like wind. I've been looking at some heat maps, they call them, of various places across the country where you can see more wind as a resource versus less wind as a resource. And as you look across New England, there's certainly a coastal band, and then there's a, a bit in inland northern New England. 
but an awful lot of our region just doesn't seem very good for, for wind at all. Do I have that right? The northern portions of our region tend to be where the wind resource is located or off of our coasts. So we have in New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, fairly significant opportunities for the build-out of new wind. We have massive opportunities off of our coast. Dong Energy just established an office in Boston, and it did so with the intention of developing offshore wind off of New England, and it would like to do so off of all of our states. There currently is an opportunity for it. They have a lease off of the state of Massachusetts. When you sit down and talk with them about their business plan, they're contemplating what may be as many as 10,000 megawatts of wind offshore. This is a significant contribution to a grid that currently accommodates about 30 to 35,000 megawatts of total power. So to inject over the next several years an additional 33% of energy that is entirely fuel-free and non-carbon emitting could be really a game changer for the region. So you're saying that especially offshore wind as a resource is something that New England could potentially have in abundance, but we don't have the public policy right now to allow for it. So in your mind, what are the barriers? I think I would rephrase that to say we historically have not had the public policies. We made some breakthroughs, frankly, in the last several weeks with the state of Massachusetts legislature passing its omnibus energy bill, which includes authorization for the state to invest in up to 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind. That investment is designed to take place over the next 10 years, and it could significantly contribute to an industry that really needs a degree of scale in order to bring down the costs. We have numerous states within the region that haven't acted. We have the state of Maine that, frankly, has acted in in fashions that have undermined the public policies where we established opportunities, uh, stat oil sought to take advantage of that opportunity, came to Maine, looked to develop a pilot project, not unlike the Deepwater Wind project, was making progress. And thanks to Governor LePage and his PUC appointees, they entirely undermined the contract that had been entered into. And Statoil walked away from Maine, sadly, leaving behind not only clean energy opportunities, but business development opportunities. But, of course, of the various public policy decisions that states have made regarding siting wind projects, it's not just the one that you're talking about in Maine. It also has to do with, frankly, what a lot of us call nimbyism, you know, just not wanting to see a big uh, wind tower in my backyard or getting in the way of the view that I have. That was certainly one of the issues when the Cape Wind Project off of Cape Cod met its demise, if you will. I mean, is that another big piece of it, that people just don't want to see these wind towers? It is a piece of it. You referenced Cape Wind, which is a a great example, a case that took 10 years with lots of money spent by well-intentioned investors. And ultimately, the project failed, but it taught us so many lessons. Uh, And one of those was that when citing a project, having that homework done up front uh, is makes an immeasurable difference. Our federal government has stepped up and engaged in a fair amount of that kind of uh, 
pre-permitting analysis and has identified specific areas where offshore wind is best located. I'm wondering how far offshore we could think about going so that we would alleviate some of the problems that people have with seeing these turbines in, in, the, in their view uh, next to their very high-priced properties along the New England coastline. Hmm. This is the real quandary because the further offshore you locate them, the longer your cable needs to be, the more infrastructure you need in place uh, to transmit that energy, and as a result, the higher the cost. And so there really needs to be a balance struck between what impacts we'll feel visually and what impacts we'll feel economically. How does the cost of offshore wind compare right now to, say, the cost of nuclear power or uh, getting your power from natural gas or, or even oil or solar? Can you give us a little breakdown about what the costs are like right now and maybe what they might be in the future? I would start by suggesting it's it's not the fairest of questions because this is a, a nascent industry. And again, the costs associated with any form of energy development really relate to the supply chains, the manufacturing chains. And when you don't yet have those in place in this country, with that said, it is anticipated that the cost of offshore wind developed off the coast of Massachusetts will be somewhere in the range of 8 to potentially 12 to 14 cents per kilowatt hour. The cost of onshore wind has generally of late been somewhere in the 4 to 10 kilowatt hour price range. And you would find that the cost of a natural gas generator is probably in the in the lower end of that scale. Nuclear is toward the middle, the higher end of that scale. So offshore wind is not yet price competitive. Onshore wind absolutely is. Solar power increasingly is. Uh, nuclear power generally is not to develop a, a new nuclear facility, which is not something that's currently contemplated in New England. This Block Island project is admittedly pretty small, but what does it mean to you that it's the first of its kind in the country? It's invaluable. It is a breakthrough that I think without it probably would not have allowed for this new legislation in Massachusetts that we hope will lead to you know, scores of other projects. And so not only is Deepwater Wind going to prove the concept but it also is a company that is prepared to take on the next several stages of offshore wind development. Of course, there's the business um, community and what they think about projects like this, whether they can make money at them moving forward. But of course, the United States and this region is under some, some pretty important mandates from the federal government and self-imposed mandates as well. I mean, how much of this has to do with with regulation and goal setting, and how much of it has to do with the market deciding that wind is the thing that we need? Well, in New England, the um, public policies and, frankly, some of the legal mandates that come out of those public policies should be uh, fairly influential in the process. And I'll give you an example. The state of Massachusetts has the 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 goal that I alluded to earlier. 
But they've gone beyond that. In their Global Warming Solutions Act, they've actually mandated that their regulatory decisions have to be consistent with that reduction. And so every time their government acts, they need to be assessing whether it is consistent with 80 percent by 2050. We have, on more than one occasion, uh, intervened in proceedings where we have held them to that standard and we intend to continue to do so. So the state of Massachusetts, which, by the way, represents almost 50 percent of electrical demand in New England, is going to be leading the way because it has a legal mandate to do so. That ought to help these industries that are in their infancy to develop. And that includes not only offshore wind, but for example, energy storage, battery development um, will benefit from the very responsible legal mandate that Massachusetts has imposed upon itself. Greg, how much of your time do you spend hopeful and encouraged about this? And how much of your time do you spend kind of beating your head against the wall, wondering why we can't move faster? It's it's admittedly probably a 50-50 split. Um, and I am forever reminding myself uh, when the pessimistic half takes over um, of the advancements that we've made. I sat, for example, at a dinner with a group of uh, executives of, of major employers in the greater Boston area recently in which they described to me their company's internal plans to become 100% renewable by 2030. These are big companies with significant budgets, large employee bases, and they are committing themselves to goals that well exceed what our government is committing us to. That gives me great hope. Greg Cunningham, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Next week is part of a New England News Collaborative series called The Big Switch. We'll be talking more about this exciting moment for renewable energy. Hope you can join us. Coming up, ever feel like the state or national government just doesn't get you? Why not secede? It's next. On our podcast, we like to give a shout out to other great podcasts from around New England. And this week, we're going to feature Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. The show brings the outdoors to you wherever you are. You don't have to be a whitewater kayaker or an obsessive composter to love Outside In. It's a show for anyone who's ever been outdoors. Host Sam Evans-Brown has been nerding out on the electricity grid even more than we have here at Next. And Outside In produced a sobering counterpoint to the segment on invasive species that we had in our first episode. I was attempting to eat all these species, but on Outside In, you can see why it's not that easy. It's highly recommended listening. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Of all the New England states to join the Union, the last was Vermont in 1791. In the 14 years between the Revolutionary War and it joining the United States, Vermont governed itself as an independent republic with its own currency and post offices. Well, there's a current group that says it takes its inspiration from those days gone by. Here's one of the leaders of the Second Vermont Republic, Rob Williams. He says the times that gave birth to the original Vermont Republic weren't that different from our own. It was in the context of this much bigger conversation between the wealthy New Yorkers west of us 
uh, and the emerging United States and the collapsing, or at least in the colonies, the uh, British Empire. So uh, Vermont was a sort of a smaller player uh, emerging as a self-constituted republic at that time. And what we're saying in the 21st century is, um, you know, if you look at what's going on in the world, and you know, the empire is no longer Britain, it's the United States. And we're really sort of trying to resurrect, I think, that spirit of independence that animated the, the founders of the first Vermont Republic. They've pushed to have Vermont secede from the U.S. too, a move that is frankly not very likely. The Second Vermont Republic is also not without controversy. The Southern Poverty Law Center has linked them to the Alabama-based white supremacist group League of the South. And throughout American history, many groups that say they want to break free have been accused of extremist views. But here's a story that we'd never heard, and it had to do with a dispute with the state government, not the federal. In the winter of 1977, residents of Martha's Vineyard were outraged over a bill in the Massachusetts state legislature that was going to strip them of their state representative. The island would be lumped into a larger Cape Cod district. Vineyard selectmen proposed a solution, and it was a radical one, secession. Producer Sally Helm has our story. Before we get into the whole secession thing, we need to say a few words about people from Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyards have their own style. I see strong people. Completely independent. Tough bunch, very tough. My grandfather couldn't complete a sentence without cussing. Vineyarders aren't the type to take an insult sitting down. And in 1977, the state of Massachusetts lobbed a big insult their way. Martha's Vineyard had always had its own state legislator. But now, there was this redistricting bill on the table, and Massachusetts said they were too small for that. So they had to share a representative. Too small, Martha's Vineyard said. Too small? Oh no. No way. Twas the big freeze of 77. A group got together numbering about 11. The farmers, the fishermen, selectmen too. Islanders all to decide what to do. It was a rainy, cold night. The meeting happened to be held in the Chilmark Community Center. It was a cold February night up in Chilmark, where it all began. We all talked about the few mundane issues that we had, and then secession. Everett Poole was the guy who first brought it up. I wanted to wind the damn meeting up so I could go home. <laughs> Everett says the selectmen argued for a long time about how they could respond to losing their representative. Then he stood up and said... If we don't get our own representation, we should secede from the state. He wasn't joking. Yankees are not over-demonstrative, you know. Well, except for the occasional secession flare-up that they get. Well, that wasn't being over-dramatic at all. That was just nuts and bolts. We are ourselves, and we should be represented as such. Us younger zealots thought this was the avenue. That's John Alley. He was one of the youngest selectmen at the meeting. Older people, I've gotten to be older now, sense that let's not upset the apple cart. John's 73 now, but when he left that meeting, he was ready to tip over a million apple carts if he had to. He sent word to the press. The All-Island Selectmen's Association had voted to leave the state and start their own. A rallying cry was heard the aisle through. It's time to secede from you know who. In retrospect, god damn, we've unraveled a can of worms here. Well, we didn't know that then. Uh, we named a, well, I named a ruling hunter. 
Joe Salito, he was then the head of the Selectmen's Association, so he became the head of the ruling junta. At the time, Joe was the clerk of the county court. We talked about establishing a Supreme Court, and I said if they did that, then I'd like to be the chief justice. Joe voted for secession that night in Chilmark. The next morning, he woke up and went about his normal business. I was at work here, and I started getting telephone calls from radio stations. And they started asking me questions about it, and from there it took off. The Boston Globe picked up the story. Then it was on the NBC Nightly News. And at town meetings across the vineyard, there were landslide votes in support of secession. In Edgartown, it was 213 to 33. Only 33 people voted against it. Meanwhile, at the State House in Boston, the Vineyard's representative lobbied hard to defeat the redistricting bill. He was quoted in the Vineyard Gazette comparing the secession movement to the American Revolution. Back on the island, John Alley remembers being in his general store when the phone rang. This man told me he was the governor of Vermont, and I said, yes, and I'm the king of England, and I hung up. The governor called back and said, no, no, it's really me. I want to annex the vineyard. Vermont relies on winter tourism, so the governor wanted a seashore to balance things out. Then Hawaii sent its welcome, and Connecticut, and New Hampshire. Joe got a proclamation of support from Tennessee. And whereas a band of rebellious islanders is preparing for independence to extent that a new flag has been designed, proposals for gambling casinos are circulated, and applications for ambassadorial posts have been submitted. And whereas and Tennessee wasn't joking. Someone had designed a new state flag, a seagull flying across an orange sun. And, of course, there was the state anthem. Onward, steadfast for the right, keep your vigil through the night. From East Chop Light to Menemsha Bite, keep our little island tight. It perhaps was overstated, but we had a, a legitimate reason for secession. That seemed to be the only channel in which you could be heard by the state officials in charge well, of it couldn't have been the only channel, right? There could have been like a write a letter, but why didn't you want to do We've that? We've all written, we, we, don't get this wrong. Letters were written, official letters with a stamp and all that. It didn't amount to hell of beans. In the end, even the secession movement couldn't stop the bill that was going to strip the vineyard of their representative. Despite all the votes and the lobbying, the redistricting bill passed the legislature in May. The governor signed it, and the hopes for a vineyard representative were pretty much over. They did get something. The legislature agreed to give the vineyard a legislative liaison, who would sort of be their voice in Boston, but without an actual vote. And the vineyard's reaction was, eh, okay. A lot of people were losing interest in the whole thing anyway. Plus, summer was coming. It just slowly died away, and we got back into doing our regular things that we usually did. But you could have been chief justice yeah. of the court. <laughs> I'm happy with the job that I have. You wouldn't have wanted to be governor? Uh, it would have been fun to do something like that. But uh, in reality, it's a really a lot of headaches. Do you think if secession came up now, how would you react? I'd probably, number one, be against it. But number two, oh, because I know how complicated and the process and the steps you have to go through. So you'd be against it now? Well, you know, I'm older now. 
And uh, hell, I've been around a while, and we were beginning to learn that the long road really went on and on and on and on. So uh, what do you do? You cut your losses and you get on with things. Everett Poole, the guy who first proposed secession, says he's done with political kerfuffles. I'm over the hill. I'm fast going down the other side, and it's younger people are going to make the decisions now, not me, not anybody my age. John agrees. Ultimately, we achieved our, pretty much all of our goal and uh, stepped aside, and uh, God bless the young bucks. A few weeks back, I brought the Martha's Vineyard State Anthem to Stupid Fun Karaoke Night, which happens every week at a bar in Oak Bluffs. I wanted to know how the Young Bucks today feel about secession. They were pretty practical. It would be hard to reorganize everything, and where would they get the money? But here and there, the idea of secession found some support. I kind of, I kind of do wish that we had our own little, right? Yeah. No one else was allowed. Do. <laughs> I guess it would be pretty, pretty cool now that I'm thinking about it. If any, any part of Massachusetts should be independent, it should be this place. <laughs> Secession's the answer. We could take no more. Secession, the answer. We could take no more. Take no more. Take no more. Take no more. John and Joe have just one thing to say to anyone who would think about secession. Good luck. Good luck. Take no more. Sally Helm produced that story at the Transom Story Workshop, thanks to PRX. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital producer is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from John Keimel and Richard Chacone. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill, and you can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. <laughs>